0: Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Hello, my name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 302. And at this episode, I'm with Eric Peterson of PHX Architecture, and he shares his thoughts on how to start an architecture firm that will survive the next recession. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, Arcat, the online resource delivering quality building material information CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more at rcat.com. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. And Gusto, easy online payroll benefits and HR built for modern small businesses like ours. Eric Peterson, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hi, good morning, welcome. Uh, It's great to have you uh, on the show here. Um, Eric B. Peterson is an award-winning architect based in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, focused on lifestyle projects, including luxury, residential, golf, clubhouses, boutique, resort, uh, and signature dining design, which I want to know what signature dining design is. Uh, Eric's uh, projects have won numerous industry design awards, and his firm PHX Architecture is now recognized throughout the Southwest for top quality design. Um, Eric, I I, uh, I shared a little bit about who you are and what you do. Um, I'd love to learn more about you and, and uh, get into your origin story. So where did you discover architecture? So go back as far as you want to go back. Um, what sure. inspired you to become an architect and share that story from that point to where you are now?
1: Great. Well, I was born and raised in Chicago, and of course, that's probably one of the greatest architecture cities in the world. We've got more architectural diverse, um, and and I think it was really, you know, architecture has almost been sort of created in the United States, born out of Chicago architecture for all the innovation and the uh, design creativity that's occurred there. So growing up in that environment in seeing Louis Sullivan and Frank Lloyd Wright sort of all around me all the time really was something very inspirational. And at the time, we had Skidmore, and Merrill, based in Chicago, building the tallest buildings in the world, so there was a lot of excitement about what Chicago was doing, and that really inspired me. I didn't have anybody in my family that was artistic or architectural, and so my family was kind of a little bit shocked by it But I started really getting more into sort of the design and result part by watching This Old House. And it was one of those one things that I sort of had in common with my dad. And it would be every Saturday sitting down and watching This Old House with him. And it just was a a great moment and memory in my my, uh, development phase and and, and enjoyed that. Uh, I was lucky enough in the suburb that I grew up in to be able to have a high school that actually had four years of technical drafting, so I was able to start very early doing some architectural drafting and drawing that's really helped uh, get my career started.
0: I, I, this old house, I think, it probably inspired many architects because it certainly was an inspiration for me. It was one of those shows oh, that, that we looked forward to every every week. Uh, I still follow it and enjoy what they're doing. Yes. Um, same. It, it's, uh, it, so it's interesting that you bring that up. And I don't think architects, I've this is episode 302, and I don't think anybody's ever referenced this old house, but I bet you that many architects have been inspired by this old house. Yeah, um, just because it's sort of uh, brought the profession to what we do, you know, to, to, the, to the wider audience, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it was just sort of how just in a short period of time, maybe one of the first sort of reality shows to actually see that interaction between a client's wants and needs, the design process and then the execution within, you know, a season which was really interesting, you know, because a lot of people didn't have that experience to go through that phase. So to understand really, you know, it's, it's still amazing to me that many clients come in, in in the whole world of architecture and how to deal with an architecture, architect is so foreign to them. And this was one of those ways that uh, people I think really got to understand what we do and how we do it. And what value we bring to to them in this process, and I think that was super important to our profession.
0: Yeah, and and it, it, they always uh, highlighted the architect. They always introduced yeah. the architect, and it was part of the process. Whereas a, a HGTV or DIY television, very often the architect is sort of left out of the story. Um, right. And things happen, you know, instead of the full season, they happen in, you know, in a 15 minute television show. And so yep. um, it's very different yeah. today. And so I, I respect that um, this old house is still doing what they're doing. So once you were inspired by that and growing up in Chicago was amazing while those buildings were being were being built. Um, where did you go to architecture school and sort of what what led you to where you are now?
1: So uh, one of the other pieces of the influence came from my mom, who was very interested in opera. And she would call me in uh, watching The, the Met on, uh, uh, from New York. And I wasn't interested in opera, but she'd say, you have to come in and look at the set designs. These sets are just unbelievable. So I would walk in and I'd look and I'd see these ridiculous, like, you know, uh, creations on the stage. And That really got me excited and when I ended up going into high school, a few of my friends were in the drama department and they got me sucked into the backstage crew yeah. and they quickly saw the talent that I had and I started designing the sets and before you know it, by my senior year I was fully engulfed in designing all of the sets, leading the stage crew for the construction and actually stage managing the, the production. So. Uh, I became very heavily involved in that aspect and, and already was then doing drawings, uh, watching the construction, and then seeing that gratification you know, as the curtain went up and people were just like amazed by what we've created. And so there was that immediate like, oh my God, this is what I wanna be. Yeah. And so I looked at, I didn't wanna go too far away from home and, um, and I wanted a more practical based, uh, education as opposed to a theoretical base, and I found that at Iowa State University they had an unbelievable uh, uh, bachelor five-year degree program, and I knew that they were going to launch a foreign study program as well, which was very important to me. So I chose that school to um, to attend, and um, during my junior year I went on the Rome foreign study program. We were the first. It's now an acclaimed uh, program in the United States for uh, in Rome, and I got to study in Rome for that semester and travel all throughout Europe, and that really, I think, just sparked me in sort of a, a, you know my my original uh, method of thinking was that I would be a suit and tie guy living in downtown Chicago and working at you know for Skidmore Owings and Merrill in the Sears Tower. And uh, at the end of school, I was completely uh, uh, in a different mode, didn't think that that was the direction I wanted to go, and um, graduated and moved to London, where I got a a job with Terry Farrell Architects, one of the top architects in London, and uh, AutoCAD had just started uh, making its mark, and so I was the only um, drafter in the studio that knew AutoCAD, had a great American accent to them so it was kind of a really cool place to be at a great time and um, I worked there for nine months and um, knew I wanted to sort of create a new life and and look to Forbes magazine they um, had Phoenix as one of the top five states of growth and they had a great uh, architecture program and so I uh, said let's just move to Phoenix and and uh, 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 see what happens there. Get a master's degree and, and integrate into the community. So I moved here, got accepted into the program, and uh, my first week at school I told my professor who was uh, uh, setting my program up that I would need a job, and he says that he's a principal at Taliesin Architects, Frank Lloyd Wright's firm. Yeah, yeah, I have the summer internship. And so that was just like launched everything for me here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so growing up in Chicago, seeing that, you know, architectural mecca, you know, happening, and then and then going to Rome again, all architecture, right, historic and and actually even even modern architecture and then coming um, Back to uh, London and being in London, uh, and then you know finding your way to Phoenix and and working with uh, with Taliesin, all of these amazing influences, you know, really, really, uh, I'm sure has molded who you are and what you do today.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean I couldn't have sort of I mean I had no plan for this. These things sort of you know I I kind of put it out there and they just sort of fell in my lap and I was able to to move on them, but they really helped create who I was. And then sitting, you know, you know, as a young architect in that uh, studio of, of Frank Lloyd Wright's and working on some original projects that Frank Lloyd Wright had designed but had never been built, like the Monona Terrace Convention Center in Madison, Wisconsin, um, was just such a great, you know, thrill uh, to be able to, to, to be in, in all of that energy and in that location, which is, you know, people were walking through every day taking pictures because it's a museum, you know, working museum as well. Uh, And it was really great. And I I feel like in Phoenix, at least, that uh, it's that sort of six degrees of separation game uh, with Taliesin, almost every architect in town within six degrees is connected back to Taliesin architects in some way. And so it immediately integrated me into the architectural community here in the Phoenix area. And I stayed with Taliesin for a year and a half. And one of the apprentices left to create a a new firm. And I went with him to help create that firm and um, uh, mentored under that uh, architect. And we created one of the top firms in in Phoenix uh, doing high-end residential and actually getting into golf club design. And, um, and, and during that time I did my mentorship and became licensed. And uh, we started an office in Beijing because um, my boss was from Beijing. And so we did a satellite office over there where most of the production was being done. And then we had a, 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 about a 20 person firm here. And uh, I really got to know in that seven years, you know, what, it was, what it really meant to sort of be an architect, running a firm, and um how to get work and how to care for clients so it was a really important time of growth in my career because i was getting information that you'd never get while you're in the education process
0: so did you you were fully exposed to the back end of the business and how that business ran and uh,
1: because I was working for a Chinese architect, they'd never fully expose anything, <laughs> and so there was sort of the secret veil of some of the things that went on, so I wasn't 100% sure on how he was finding clients and how he was negotiating the fee structure and sort of some of the accounting part of it. But I was understanding sort of the architectural business end of it on, you know, we have you know, six months to get this done, we've got a fee of a hundred thousand. And, you know, so how does that sort of plan out, you know, and, and you know, we had the resource of using the China office to help get things done uh, with a, a less budget on the, on the labor force. Um, but I was only there about seven years. And so it, I didn't get fully integrated into, to, into that. And during that time I'd gotten married and gotten my license. And I just felt like I I probably I, didn't, and I never had I always felt like this would be the perfect position because I was going to be the right hand to the lead architect. I didn't have that um, entrepreneurial spirit to say I want to have my own firm. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of a new twist that came in where I just felt like I don't think I could work here anymore because he was really expanding more into China and I wasn't comfortable with that um, I didn't feel like that was my passion. And so I said, you know, and I couldn't ever go work for another firm because I felt like I would really be going against, this was my mentor. I didn't wanna compete, you know, against him by going to another firm. So I said, well, what the heck, I'll just, you know, hang my hat on the door and see if anybody calls. Well, this is back in 2002, 2003. I had no clue that we were on the cusp of this unbelievable boom in the economy and uh, you know set up a little shop and had, had a phone where i answered it myself and had my autocad and it and it just was instantaneous you know there was so much going on in my previous firm everybody knew i was the right hand man and we i instantly had all sorts of great clients that weren't going to hire us at the other firm but they were very eager to hire me on my own and uh before i knew it i was hiring one person, three months later, two people, four months later, five people, and, you know, within two years, I had 15 employees working for me. So it was an unbelievable fast growth, and the learning curve was coming uh, extremely rapid <laughs> on how to invoice and manage the money and look towards our forward flow and what work is coming in and, it was a difficult time because I'm doing all of that stuff that's out of my comfort zone because I have no business background, no business training. But and, and then on the other side, I'm doing the stuff that I'm completely and totally passionate about and love to do, which is the design side. And then you got to manage staff as well, which I almost had no clue on how to how to do on top of that.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of listeners right now are shaking their head. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. I'm doing the same thing. Um, so, so how did you get? How did you learn that? How did you get through that? I mean, it sounds like like a very rapid growth. Um, how did you learn what you needed to learn?
1: It, did, it was, and it was difficult because, as most uh, other architects know, architects aren't really great at sharing. So, we, even though, I, as I've later found out, a lot of other architects. We're going through the same thing we never talked we, we held held everything close so even when we'd see each other socially at AIA meetings or anything nobody was saying gosh I'm struggling with this or that you know everybody sort of holds their shoulders high and says everything's great I've got it all under control you know we, we kind of had that the AIA doesn't also foster back especially at that time you know about uh, 17 years ago or so there wasn't a lot of you know like let's share things and talk about our fees and talk about our problems you know it was more um like we can't talk about those things so we were never in that position of being able to just pull somebody aside and go i'm struggling here like how do i deal with this employee or how do i deal with this client and i really was uh, and i joined the aia i was attending a lot of meetings hoping that that would be from our professional association a place where i can gain some of that knowledge. I felt very alone because I have gone and started my own firm. I, I can't talk to my employees about this, so who, who do I turn to, you know? Um, I, did, I did engage a couple of, of my entrepreneurial clients and sort of as they became friends would say, hey, I know you started your own business. Can you help me with, you know, invoicing, what am I, what can I do better? You know, what kind of things could I implement? Or I would talk to others about HR, you know, how how do I deal with a a client that, or an employee that might have these issues that I'm dealing with right now? And and I I was blessed to have some really great clients that had done some great things within their own industry, building their own business that gave me some great advice. But I was still really um, yearning for that camaraderie between the other architects that wouldn't feel threatened by sitting down and having a conversation with me about what they're doing and how they're doing it that would also be able to help me
0: yeah and you know what you just described is a major inspiration for why entre architect was launched yeah I love um, that. because that that sharing culture is a, a, a foundation of entre architect um, inside, there's a private membership, but there's also a Facebook group that's got over 3,000 members in it now, private Facebook group. That's di- ins- di- directly in, uh, intended to be that s- uh, place where you can go in a closed uh, private uh, conversation and ask other architects, hey, I'm struggling here. I need a, I need some help. And you'll get 50 answers it. from architects all over the country. And so... Because um, we need that. Yeah. You know? I, mean, some,
1: I mean, we're not different from a business... In in businesses, you know, different businesses they have leadership groups, they have you know young professional groups. It, it's not uncommon that a bunch of uh, business leaders get together and share, you know, their common uh, concerns or problems or solutions. But for whatever reason, architects never felt like we can't do that. You know, right? You know, they're my competitor. We're like I might lose a project to them. You know?
0: Yeah. And that was the culture. I mean, that was, that was, uh, that was um, sort of encouraged by the AIA to be secretive and not talk about money and not talk about uh, the way you are doing businesses. And, and architects sort of inherently, because of that, culture have become very closed and, and, and private in what they're doing, including their struggles. You know, they sort of yeah. hid those struggles. Like you said, you sort of walk into the AIA meeting, you know, like you've, you're conquering the world. But truthfully, we're all struggling because none of us know how to run businesses when we first start. Um, and so uh, I think that culture is shifting a little bit. I think through the internet and con- these con- types of connections, uh, some of that's changing. I think the focus on business and even the AIA is starting to talk about the B word. They're also talking about business now. Um, and so some, a lot of that is changing. So uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm inspired by that. We will be right back to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. If you work with specifications in your firm, you probably have come across outdated manufacturer specs with confusing notes, products that no longer exist, or maybe even companies that no longer exist. Maybe you even pay for specifications. Stop, stop right there. There's a better way to find manufacturer specifications for your project documentation. RCAT.com. RCAT is the number one most used website for finding building product information and has a free library of over 1,400 up-to-date accurate specifications. RCAT's specs are written by FCSI, CCS, and AIA professionals based on manufacturer's data. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right specifications for your project and quickly download them in multiple formats for free. That's right, RCAT is completely free. Everything at RCAT is free. You don't even have to register. Just go over to RCAT.com, that's A-R-C-A-T.com, and start building better content today. Do you remember when you started your small firm? It wasn't easy. It took lots of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Well, bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since, so why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have a solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners like us. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you way more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumpled receipts. Create and send professional looking invoices in 30 seconds and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part? FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools you need when you need them, without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it for free for 30 days, no catch, no credit card. Visit entrearchitect.com FreshBooks. That's entrearchitect.com FreshBooks. And enter entrearchitect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Payroll and benefits. What do you think about when I, when I say those words? Does it make your head hurt? Well, I know. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. You're an architect. And old school payroll providers just aren't built the way that we work today. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses like ours, Modern technology does all the heavy lifting, so it's easy for you to get it right. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. To help support our show, the Entree Architect podcast, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive deal. Sign up today for three months and get it for free once you run your first payroll. Three months free. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash Gusto and claim your free Three months of payroll processing right now. entrearchitect.com slash gusto. RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the entree architect community. At where are you now? What what type of work are you doing now and and, and how is how's business?
1: Yeah, so uh, we're in our 17th year and um, you know, through the years, obviously right in the center of the whole uh, time period, we had the recession. Mm-hmm. So I had gotten up to 30 employees. I did have a, a partner that was brought on that was more business oriented, that could help through that. They were very passionate about the business side. And so they were able to do their passion and run the business. And I was able to do my passion and run the design side. Um, so that that was helpful during that time the recession came on and we had to go down to about seven employees during that and really during that is where I think we really sort of we had this intense growth unbelievable um, popularity great projects and then this this whole season of nothing you know we'd had enough little projects just to kind of get us through with six employees seven employees and and it allowed us to totally regroup. I, I was running it more like a small firm with I was Peterson Architecture. It was sort of just small, you know, residential projects. And I said, coming out of this, we're gonna be in a very different world. And we can't just sit by and think that the phone's gonna ring and somebody's gonna call me. We need to be more aggressive about how we approach things and I need to be more diversified in the types of projects that we work on. It can't just be high-end residential so we decided to rebrand during that time period and call ourselves phx architecture i i was also very passionate about doing we i had done some golf clubhouse work which is also sort of in the realm of sort of a a big custom home yeah so i said you know i want to focus on boutique hospitality which would include small resorts um, individualized restaurants not chain restaurants and and golf clubs because they all really interconnect together you hotel lobbies have restaurants golf club houses look like homes but have a restaurant so it was really all the same type of thing and um but it would allow me to be th- those types of projects have to constantly re renew themselves every seven to ten years so i knew i would have a steady amount of work if i became known for that type of product and i would still be able to do the custom homes that we're doing. So by rebranding during that time period, number one, we were the only person doing anything during that time, so I got tons of press. I was on the cover of business journals, I made magazines because they were searching for any good news that they could possibly do. And so um, it was sort of not purposeful, but it just ingeniously happened that I got tons of press. And when we came out of the recession, people were like, they knew about me because I'd sort of gotten some a lot of free press during that time period and we started picking up projects faster than everybody else. I uh, I changed from having a partnership because I felt by that point I, I sort of known enough information and my kids became teenagers. And so my wife was able to come into the firm and help with with the, the, on the business side of things. We implemented a software program called Ajira, which uh, was specifically designed to help not only project manage, uh, schedule, but also was integrated, uh, customized to our firm to do the invoicing and time tracking. So all of those things sort of together really, you know, were things that we had learned from the past and the mistakes that we made to really set us forward focused and forward thinking on what we wanted to do in the future.
0: And today you're doing all that type of work and you're about how many how many members in the firm now? Yeah, so we're,
1: we're back up to 30. Uh, the way we've structured it is that I've got one principal that manages the residential staff, one principal that, resident, that manages the uh, hospitality staff, and then my wife manages about five people on our admin staff plus oversees the human resources side. So I'm able to really sort of manage about five people, and then each each one each principal has their team of about ten or so, and uh, that then allowed us to expand into another market. We pretty much work throughout the Southwest, but I specifically uh, decided to go and physically have a presence with the satellite office in Beverly Hills, and I've got two employees in. In Beverly Hills full-time and in 28 in the Scottsdale headquarters.
0: That's very interesting. As you talk about the history of your firm, you, you talk about how uh, you launched your firm and it grew very, very quickly, and then there was the recession, and then you had this opportunity to sort of rethink things and then grow again. Um, yeah. Do you sort of see that as two, uh, two different halves of your firm? Do you sort of see that That recession as an opportunity to sort of redevelop what you're doing and and uh, rebuild it
1: yes it it completely was and so the first phase prior to the recession was i was very optimistic i just never thought anything would change the work was flowing in at a steady rate we were on top of the world but there was nothing strategic it was just Mouth open, everything coming in, higher, higher, higher. Take the client, take a client, take a client. Nobody was watching if they were being profitable. Nobody knew if we were over the schedule. It was just it was the happy years of just like everything happening and nobody really watching what was going on. And then, you know, and I had really felt like all my employees were family. So when the when the first signs of the recession hit and everybody was panicking. I was like no nothing's going to change we've always had work coming in everything's great don't worry about it and i went way into the recession too far before i knew i had to make a change and it was literally on a you know black friday type event where like you know over half the firm had to be let go and we had gone significantly into into the bank account during that time to have that happen so it was really really tough and that sort of gut punch was a wake up call that said, I got to use this time and, and we had a lot of time to really come out of this and be very strategic. And, and we, you know, during that phase, we were able to put together spreadsheets and forward flow out, outlooks and really just say, what is everything that we need to know that's gonna never allow us to get into these kind of positions again. And how do we diversify the types of projects that we do. So if one's high, the other's low, we're, we've got constant work. And so coming out of it, it was very strategic in how we hired in the type of work that we brought in and looking six months out on invoicing and and revenue coming in. And looking at how much, how many hours every month were spent on what jobs. So it was completely different uh than than prior to the recession
0: yeah yeah that's a i mean it, you look at the recession and typically the recession is a very negative thing and it was a negative thing you know we all sort of um lived through that moment and and time um but it also gave you this opportunity to sort of reinvent yourself and and yeah and, and redo it the way it should be done
1: if it could have ever been at the mo- more perfect time in anybody's sort of career path it was for us i mean yeah. some Architects got hit because it was right at the point that they would be retiring some, you know, the AIA says basically there's that five year period. If you start a firm and you make it past five years, that's a, that then you're really in a good position. So a lot of, a lot of people got hit within the first five years of their startup and, and that destroyed them as well. So for for me, it was really, I, you know, the most perfect timing for that to occur, for me to learn from it, and actually rebound from it stronger than we were before.
0: Yeah, and and if you look at the time that we're in now, the period of, of uh, economic cycle that we're in now, we're in a very similar place that you were when you first started, right? We're in a good time. Things are still moving, but there's something out on the horizon coming, right? And They all talk about the business cycle. So the next recession is coming. We don't know when it'll come. Um, So if you could give advice to the architects who are out there now, who are listening right now, who are in this moment where they're going to start their firm, it's a good time and things are good, but we know something's coming. What advice would you give to those architects who want to start an architecture firm today knowing that? you know, in a few years, we're probably going to be in another recession.
1: Right. Yeah. I, you know, number one, just being able to look in advance, right. You can't just be one month in, in, ahead of it. You have to be six months ahead of it and even a year. So you have to have your, your plan on what, what's a year out, what's six months out, what's a month out and in, in whatever that ability is, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or, you know, a JIRA is a very expensive program, but some way, being able to understand where you want to be and what, what has to happen. And so the minute there's signs that, uh, something's changing, you can make adjustments very quickly. Um, you know, for us, it meant being diversified. Now that might not be a, a a solution for everyone, but you have to be able to say, if I'm only doing one thing, you know, and if it's residential, and I'm only working with one or two builders, or, or however you're, you're finding your work, that that may be a problem in the future. So if you just want to stick with residential, you need to somehow figure out, like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, we all hear that all the time, and you kind of think, oh, this is going to go great forever, but it just won't. You know, you have to be prepared to say, that guy, something could happen to that person who I'm working with, and, and the flow of work's not going to be there anymore. Then what am I going to do? So being a little bit more diverse, uh, I, you know, for us, really, you know, not only in the type of product, but hospitality and residential, which merged really well for us together, but also in location. So we're, you know, we're in Los Angeles, Arizona, and Texas as our three major markets, and um, normally those three markets will not all crash at the same time. I don't think we'll ever be in a situation. Like the 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 Great Recession, where everything across the country stops in right. all markets and all times. So as slow as a slowdown starts in California, we're a year behind that in Arizona and a year behind that in Texas. And by the time that hits through Texas, California will be back up again. So I I can have this sort of rolling work that that you know ends up you know allowing me to have steady work, but it might change from location and it might change from product type and, it, and as long as they're not too you know we don't do uh, hospitals we don't do education we don't do libraries and museums it, you know because those are such a huge divergence from the, the core i feel like it's hard for an architect to try to say we do everything right because it's so hard to do everything so i think you have to pick a, a Good variety of things that really connect and overlap, and do really great at that. And and you have to find a real way to express the value, so that even in hard times, people go, "That guy is the guy who I'm going to go to," you know, because out of everybody else, he's providing or she something that's so valuable that I can't do without it. Right. So, problem.
0: So diversification. but still as a target market. So you still have an identified target market that sort of overlap with one another, and so yes. and so you're not a generalist, so you are a target market, but you are diversifying in order to yeah. sort of balance things out. The idea of uh, regionally diversifying as well, much easier today with the technology and the internet that connections that we have today. We could do that yeah. um, in a much easier way than we once could. Um, so strategic planning absolutely is a must if you're gonna start your firm. Um, and and sort of uh, putting di- sort of uh, diversifying the type of work that you're going to do uh, is, is another. Um, the When you first started your architecture firm and you were in that moment where you're sort of everything is good um, was there any fear starting that architecture firm or did it just everything sort of work out and you just rolled with it?
1: No, it was complete fear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> complete like because i really you know on the business side i didn't have any clue and um uh i just had this faith that that it'll come to me um i did have um, a brother-in-law that was on, uh, very much on the business side of things and i had him to, as somebody that I could look towards and give me some advice, but he didn't totally understand the architecture business. He came at it from a strict sort of normal business operation and there's different nuances to how architects build and, and how we price things that is different from sort of just general business knowledge. And those nuances You know, it just takes time and somehow you have to get that. Now, over the years, there's books that have come out that are a little bit more about how to run a business and those things have sort of opened up over the years. And I've been able to find some really great friends locally that have also been going down the same road as me and we get together sort of quarterly for drinks or dinner and just sort of share, you know, Ideas and thoughts, and hey, this worked for me. And we've even gotten to the point to call each other or warn each other when a client might be out searching around and trying to lowball or put pitch two guys against each other. And they'll call and say, "This this this person's a nightmare." And be like, "Don't you know? Don't lower your fee. They're going to try to do pit us against each other." So you need that. That was something that was so important for me to have so that i didn't feel like i was alone in this
0: yeah the the temptation to start an architecture firm because it's a good time and you know the the work just starts coming in the temptation to not stop and do a plan even though you know you should because you yeah. know you hear you should you're starting a business you should st- you know, put together some sort of uh, strategic plan it's so tempting to not do that because things are good right. Um, but it is, it's essential, right? And you have to do that. Um, and that's yeah. a lesson that you learned, um, and had the opportunity to redo when you, yeah. you when you redo. it. Always
1: in this time period, and uh, you know, especially when you start bringing on employees, uh, you, you get to this timeline and there's always, um, such unbelievable amount of work out there that every, every employee decides, Oh, this is easy. I could do that. You know, I'll just leave this guy and. start my own thing and i'll get all sorts of projects but what they don't yeah sure that's easy that's one job right now and that's going to do great for you but you know then you got to start looking two years down the road and three years down the road and how where where are you going to be and and how are you going to get that next job and the next job and the next job that's where it really gets tough and a lot of people don't think about that they're just so excited like yeah i got this guy i'm going to go do it And uh, when you go do that, you forget that suddenly half of your time is now involved with running a business and sometimes even more than half of that time. And so you go, oh, I could easily do that. Well, now you take half of your time out like that's not that easy anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so what's the future look like for uh, PHX Architects? Architecture. So, uh,
1: you know, like I said, I'm, we're approaching our 20-year anniversary, I'm uh, 50 years old now, and I didn't feel like, you know, we really reached a nice pinnacle here locally in Phoenix, and I I said, you know, is the next, you know, 20, 30 years of my career, am I here, and am I just sort of level, and this is, I'm on cruise control, and I didn't feel like that was enough for me right now. And I, I didn't feel like the great work that's happening here in Phoenix is really recognized anywhere else within the country. And when I reached out to a number of national uh, magazines and, and press, everybody was sort of in the same mode, like, well, we're not interested in Phoenix. It's not an exciting market for the rest of the country. And so that sort of bothered me. And I said, well, what can I do to do something different. Because I, I, I'm not happy just staying level for the next 30 years or whatever. And so a number of people had said, well, you need another market, you know, either L.A. or Chicago or New York. And um, L.A. being, you know, an hour flight away was sort of the easiest target. And so knowing that my wife was going to be coming into the firm and helping manage, that allowed me to do a little bit more away time. So I I uh, went and looked at and have now started two years into a satellite firm in Los Angeles, and so now we now that adds to the complexity of the business structure because we've got you know the LA office you know under a, a separate entity uh, uh, LLC structure that because you have all sorts of new California laws and rules that you have to abide by for businesses and employees. And, and the goal is, because fee structures are almost three times more in LA than they are in Arizona, that, you know, we could start picking up some work and be very competitive there with a, a workforce that's based in Arizona and pick up projects that are now in Los Angeles and take this to a, a new level. And certainly during that time period, you know, we've been very strategic. but. Just with that Beverly Hills business card now, we've been published nationally. The magazines are more interested in us. We're, we we're published in Wall Street Journal, Interiors Magazine, and you know, suddenly it starts to put us on more of a national stage and, um, and bring our work you know, to a, sort of a greater public and be known more. And, and not, that, not that anything really has changed other than we become more global when we're not just in one city. Yeah. And so we're in that, we're in a new learning curve on the business side of how do we now track the two offices? You know, right now the Scottsdale office is still mostly carrying the Beverly Hills office because of, uh, you know, we're in that growth period. Um, what, what's gonna make that LA office then a success? How do we measure that? How long do we let that go until we know that? So it's, um, uh, you know, we're in a very exciting phase. It's sort of rejuvenated me. I'm very excited again for where this could go and what we could do, meeting a whole bunch of new uh, relationships that we're building now in LA. Uh, so it's sort of giving me an, another lease on life for the next, the next uh, phase.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So it's like the third phase of P- yeah. PHX. It's, it's uh, okay. very interesting. Um, so, what's uh, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody. I've, uh, I've we've done over 300 episodes now, 250 something people answered this question, and everybody answers it differently because uh, it's very open ended. So, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow?
1: Yeah, and I think we talked about it a little bit. I think you just you have to be looking always at tomorrow. And you, you have to know where you want to be and what the plan is to get there. And it's difficult, I think, for architects to get into that mindset because we are very much about, you know, today and our clients and the designs that we're doing, but you have to have a plan and you, and you have to, you, you have to realize that the money doesn't lie. Like, you know, the numbers on that spreadsheet you just can't. You just can't pretend that you're not seeing what you're seeing, you know. And you have to be able to make the decisions that are tough. Most of the time, architects and I—I I know this just from myself and others—we're passionate, we're artistic, and we're sort of um, we're like these great sort of believers in super optimists, and that goes against the very smart uh, rudimentary businessmen, and, and it's difficult for us to move into that, that position. And so if it is, you should have somebody on your team that is that person that could slap you across the face and say, wake up, you've got to make some real decisions here. And I needed that. And, um, you know, I see a, a lot of friends that are architects that also need that because I think the beauty of our profession is we are that type of person but we have to recognize that this is a real business with real challenges and real money and and you have to also be able to be that person too
0: amen (laughs) amen totally agree i um exactly i'm not going to even comment on it it's perfect Uh, i actually
1: tell you know i I stay involved with our uh, uh, students we always have interns I stay involved with the Franklin Wright School at Taliesin. And when we have students come in or talk to uh, high school students or even college students, I I urge them to take business classes or, or even just to get a straight-up business major because they already have the top talent and the passion on the architecture side. It, it boggles my mind that they spend four more years going to just increase that skill when they already have it. And I go, get the skill of being a businessman and then maybe do a master's and just fine tune that, that creative side. But you already have that. You don't have the business side. So come out of it as a business major and then launch into the career.
0: Yeah, exactly. Great advice. The website is phxarcharch.com. phx Phxarch. A-R-C-H dot com, phxarch. Dot com eric this has been a really interesting conversation um you and i have uh have um uh led a very similar path or similar age and uh have uh the similar um origins in this old house and and uh um have gone through similar uh, uh struggles in building businesses and so i appreciate you for uh sharing your story uh, for being so open and honest about the struggles that you've been through, and and uh, the the way that you've thrived, uh, and the and the future plans that you have, so thank you very much for joining us here today at Entre Architect Podcast.
1: Great, thanks so much for having me, and thank you for what you're doing for the architects that need this help.
0: You're welcome. So you just listened to episode 302. If you'd like to access the show notes. Or share a link with a friend. The episode number is 302, and the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 302. If you haven't yet visited the new homepage over at entrearchitect.com, go there now. We just redesigned it to be more useful for you, the small firm architect. Find everything you need to help you build a better business. Links to the podcast, a search engine to find articles, resources and all the podcast episodes. We have 302 podcast episodes. You can go there, go right to the search engine, boom, 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 find the episode that you're looking for, and access to all our products and resources, and access to the Entree Architect membership. If you are not yet a member, you need to join us right now. Each month, we invite an expert into the membership, and they present a 60-minute training webinar on the most critical topics of business, leadership, and life as a small firm architect. In January... Our Entree Architect expert will be Michael Ringel of Strategies for Wealth, and he will be training on a very popular, very requested topic of firm transitions, exit strategies, succession planning, all that stuff that we talk about. How do we we move our, our firm from one ownership to another? How do we exit our firm with some value, some wealth? That's going to be talked about in January at our Entree Architect Expert Training Session with Michael Ringel. If you are already a member, just watch the member forum for registration information. It's part of your membership. If you're not yet a member, you can join us right now. It's right there at EntreeArchitect.com. You can go join us. It's all there, all in one place. The blog, the podcast, the resources, and the links to join us at Entree Architect. It's all there waiting for you at EntreeArchitect.com. Hope to see you there. Love, learn, share what you know, Thanks for listening. Have a great week.
1: I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging. The podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening. Stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term.
0: The process of starting an
1: architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome, and I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it?
0: Did we just decide a name?
1: <laughs> we did it, guys.
0: Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. They came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it.
1: Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.
0: Calling all small firm architects, it's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. And so uh, for me, the the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.